Blog Talk Radio. We're loading it up. Hang on. It's good to be with you at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living, which God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. My theme for this week is one which vitally concerns all of us, without exception, how to overcome evil. Every one of us is confronted every day by the presence and the power of evil in various forms, some from without some from within ourselves. It must be admitted that many of us do not always succeed in overcoming this force of evil, not because we do not want to, but because we do not know how to. In my talks this week, I am going to share with you, out of Scripture, the all-important how-to, how you can actually overcome evil. First of all, we need to see that there is no room for neutrality. We have two, and only two, alternatives. We either overcome evil, or we are overcome by it. Paul presents these alternatives very concisely in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, where he says this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, there are just two alternatives. We can overcome evil, but if we do not overcome evil, then evil will overcome us. There is no state of neutrality where we neither overcome nor are overcome. That just isn't a possibility in actual experience. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's important to see that there's only one power in the universe strong enough to overcome evil, and that is good. We have to meet evil with good, with a good that is more powerful than the evil that confronts us. Now, the only source of that goodness is God himself. So, in order to overcome evil, we have to be allied with God. We have to have access to God's resources, to God's wisdom, to God's power, to the means that God has placed at our disposal. Now, the goodness of God and all that goes with it, all the resources that flow from His goodness, are revealed to us and made available to us through God's Word, the Bible. That's why, in order to overcome evil, we have to be acquainted with the Bible. We have to know what the Bible teaches about it and the provision that God has made for us, which is revealed only in the Bible and in any other book, of course, that's based on the Bible. Now, when we confront evil and we look to the Bible for guidance and wisdom, we find there one revelation of God's Word which is a key to our whole conflict with evil. If we do not grasp this key and use it, we will be continually frustrated and ultimately defeated. Now, listen carefully because I'm going to put in your hand now this key 
this revelation of Scripture, which is so vital, so essential. The key is this. Evil is not something, it is someone. I'm going to say that again. Evil is not something, it is someone. I can remember when I read that simple sentence in a book, the revelation and the transformation that came to me through it. Let me briefly relate a personal experience, not in great detail. For many years, as a preacher, I had a tremendous ongoing struggle with depression. I'm sure none of you have ever had that struggle, or have you? And I used every means I knew. I used prayer, I used fasting, I used Bible study, I made resolutions, but I never gained full and enduring victory until a revelation came to me by the Holy Spirit out of the Word of God. The revelation came from a verse in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, where the Lord promises that He will give His people the garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. And when I read that phrase, the spirit of heaviness, something came to me by revelation, by a flash of insight. I saw that my problem was a person, an invisible but very real person, a person without a body, a spirit, a spirit of heaviness or depression that was systematically attacking me. And when I realized that I was not dealing with something but with someone, I was 80% of the way to victory. Almost immediately after that, I gained complete victory over that awful force of depression which was seeking actually to destroy me and to ruin my ministry. But the victory didn't come without the revelation that I was dealing not with something but with someone. And this is consistent with the whole revelation of Scripture. Behind all evil, there is a person. And the Bible clearly reveals the identity of that person. That person has two main names or titles. In the Old Testament, he's called Satan. And in the New Testament, he's called the devil. Each of those names has a meaning which is significant. The name Satan means the one who resists or opposes. The one who resists and opposes God, God's purposes, and God's people. So as the people of God, we have one who opposes us. Satan, the adversary, the resister. In the New Testament, the title, the devil, means the slanderer or the accuser. So one main weapon that Satan uses against us is slander or accusation. Now where did Satan come from? That's a profound question. I can't answer it in fully in a few moments, but let me say that at one time, Satan was not Satan. He was Lucifer, one of the chief archangels of God, outstanding both for his beauty and his wisdom. Apparently, he was in charge of one-third of all the created angels, but his heart became proud because of his beauty and his wisdom, and he determined to seek equality with God, and he led the one-third of the angels under his charge in rebellion against Almighty God. For that rebellion, he was cast down from the heaven of God's dwelling. But instead of that, he set up his own rival kingdom of rebellious angels in another area of the universe, still in the heavenlies, an area which is sometimes called 
the mid-heaven, somewhere between earth and the heaven of God's throne and God's presence. And so that's Satan's headquarters today. It's in the heavenlies, and there he rules over a company of rebellious angels, and his supreme purpose is indicated by his name, to resist and to thwart God's purposes and God's people. The New Testament gives us a clear picture of Satan's rival kingdom, where it's located, how it operates, and the spiritual beings that are members of that kingdom. One of the clearest passages is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. I'm going to read this in two versions. First of all, in the New International Version, then in the Living Bible. We'll begin with the New International Version, Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Notice, there are spiritual forces of evil, and they're associated with rulers, with persons who have authority and seek to exercise it and to dominate and to rule. Now, in the Living Bible, this is the translation. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies. Lay hold of that phrase, persons without bodies, spirit beings who are in opposition to God and his people. The Living Bible then goes on to specify these persons without bodies. It says, the evil rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. So our enemies are persons without bodies. They're led by one person without a body, Satan, and they are located in the spirit world. That's the nature of our warfare. That's the conflict we're engaged in. Unless we understand it, we cannot possibly be fully successful in it. Let me, in closing, just make a few brief comments on that statement of Paul. First of all, our conflict is cosmic. That is to say, it involves the whole universe, not just earth, but heaven and earth. It's a cosmic conflict. Secondly, it's not in the realm of the senses. We don't know the nature of the conflict by what we see or hear, but it comes to us by revelation through the Holy Spirit and out of Scripture. Thirdly, this conflict and its nature is unrecognized by the majority of people. They just are not aware that this is what they're up against. They know they're struggling against something, but they can't see it and they can't understand it. They don't know how to define it. They don't know how to deal with it. And the fourth point I want to make is that the outcome of this conflict in the spiritual realm is ultimately decisive. The result in the spirit realm, whether it's victory or defeat, will determine the result in every other area of our lives. In my introductory talk yesterday, I shared with you one key revelation out of God's Word. Evil is not something... It is someone. I'll say that again. It's so important. Evil is not something. It is someone. Behind evil, there is a person. In fact, there is a whole host of evil spirit beings. 
The Living Bible calls them persons without bodies. Vast hosts of spirits, evil spirits in the spirit world. We're not dealing with the world of the senses. We're dealing with another world, the spirit world, which is discerned only spiritually and not through the senses. And in this kingdom of evil, there is a ruler. His name is Satan. That's his Old Testament name, meaning the resistor, the adversary. In the New Testament, his main title is the devil, meaning the slanderer or the accuser. At one time, Satan was not Satan. He was Lucifer, one of the brightest and wisest and most beautiful of all God's archangels. But his heart was lifted up in pride because of his beauty and his wisdom. He sought a place of equality with God himself. He led his angels in rebellion against God. He and his angels were cast out of the heaven of God's presence and set up a rival kingdom in the spiritual realm somewhere in the New Testament referred to as the heavenlies. And that is the source of opposition to us. That is where evil comes from in its pressures against us. If we trace it to its source, that is its source. Today I'm going to describe some of the main ways that Satan works against us. Always remember, his name means the resistor, the adversary, the opposer. First of all, I want to give you a few scriptural pictures of Satan. And I want to say in advance, none of them are very pleasant. He's never presented in a pleasant way anywhere in the Bible. Revelation 12:9, And the great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. <clears throat> Notice there are two pictures, the dragon, the serpent. The dragon is a great, powerful beast that inspires fear, that rages. Very vivid for me because some years back I inherited from my family some antique Chinese uh, vessels, porcelain vessels that were all marked with the Chinese dragon. And so the image of the dragon is always very real in me. Let me say that I decided I didn't want to keep those vessels in my home, and so I got rid of them simply because I didn't want the portrait of Satan in my home all the time. But for that reason, the dragon is particularly vivid to me. It's large, it's fearful, it's fierce, it's awe-inspiring, it threatens, it terrifies, and it tramples and destroys. On the other hand, the serpent or the snake is small, sometimes scarcely visible. He doesn't come in that same way as the dragon, but he kind of inserts himself through some little crack or hole. I was born in India and uh, grew up the first five years of my life there. One of the problems in India is the cobra. At least 500 people die every year snake bite in India. But the cobra doesn't come like a dragon. He comes up the bathroom pipe, and he's in the room before you know it. Well, that again is how Satan operates. He can be a dragon, or he can be a snake. He can be large and fierce and awe-inspiring and terrifying, or he can be very slimy and slippery and come in through some little hole where you wouldn't expect an enemy to come. And then turn to John 8:44, and this is what Jesus says to the people who were trying to kill him. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. 
He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice the three titles there, murderer, liar, and father of lies. And then in John 10.10, 10, Jesus gives another designation. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief there is a person, of course. It's Satan. He's contrasted with Jesus. Satan is the life taker. Jesus is the life giver. Let's just sum up those pictures of Satan that we've looked at briefly there. The dragon, the serpent, the murderer, the liar, the father of lies, the thief, the life taker. None of those pictures is pretty, but they're honest. They're true to the facts. We need to know them. And then, Notice what Jesus says about the reason that Satan comes into our lives. He says, Satan, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There are three purposes that Satan has. To steal, to kill, to destroy. Whenever Satan comes into our lives, that's what he comes to do. He'll disguise his motives. He'll seek to conceal his presence and his activity but his ultimate objectives never change. To steal, to kill, to destroy. To steal means to take away that which is rightfully ours, our inheritance in God, the blessings that God wants us to have. To kill is to take our life physically. Remember, he's a murderer. He kills people physically. To destroy goes beyond time into eternity. To destroy is the ultimate ongoing eternal destruction of the lost soul that's been deceived and ensnared by Satan. So bear in mind continually what Jesus warned us. He only comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. We've looked at some of the main pictures of Satan given us in the Scripture. Now let's look at some of the main ways that he works. What does he do against us? Uh, let's go back to Revelation 12, verse 9 for a moment. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That's the first and most characteristic operation of Satan. He deceives. He works through deception. He's a liar. He does not come with the truth. He does not present facts as they really are. He deceives us. And only after he has deceived us can he accomplish his other purposes against us. So we need to bear in mind continually that Satan operates on the basis of deception. Deception is the way he initially ensnares his victims. Once he has us deceived, then he can do against us the other evil things that are his purpose. So always be on your guard against deception. The real safeguard against deception is the Word of God, the truth of Scripture. The Scripture is true. And if we're persuaded of anything contrary to the Scripture, somewhere behind that persuasion is the enemy, Satan. And his aim in deceiving us is to destroy us. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, a picture of the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness says, The tempter came to him, Jesus, and said, If you are the Son of God, 
Tell these stones to become brain. Notice the title there given to Satan, the tempter. To tempt is to entice. Satan entices us to do evil. He sets before us something that seems desirable and attractive, and once we're deceived by him, it's pretty easy for us to believe that it's desirable and attractive. Then he says, if you want this thing, then this is what you need to do. But this that he's trying to persuade us to do is always something that's in disobedience to God. He tempts or entices us to disobey God on the basis of something apparently attractive or worthwhile that he's offering us. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul writes this, For we wanted to come to you, that's the Thessalonian Christians, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. And another version says Satan hindered us. That's another typical activity of Satan, especially towards the servants of God. He thwarts, he hinders, he opposes their intentions, he puts obstacles in their way, he resists. That's one of the meanings of Satan, the resister. And then we look in Revelation 12:10, speaking of Satan again. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Another typical activity of Satan. He accuses. He accuses us primarily to God. Why does he accuse us? What's his motive? His motive is to prove us guilty. See, the greatest single tool that Satan has against us is guilt. If he can keep us feeling guilty, then we are never a match for him. We can never rise up, take the offensive against him and defeat him. So he is continually accusing us. He's misrepresenting us. He's bringing out all our bad points and overlooking our good ones and saying everything bad that can be said against us. His aim being to make us guilty. So let's just quickly sum up those four ways in which Satan operates. They're not the only four, but they are four main ways. He deceives, he tempts or entices, he hinders, and he accuses. In my two previous talks, I've laid the foundation for an accurate scriptural understanding of the nature of evil. First of all, I said, evil is not something, it is someone. Lay hold of that. Just don't let it slip from your mind from now on. Just keep it in mind whenever you confront evil, behind the evil that you see or feel or experience, there is someone, a spirit being, a person, someone whom the Bible calls Satan, the resister, or the devil, the slanderer, or the accuser. And then I gave you a number of scriptural pictures or descriptions of Satan. He's the dragon, the serpent or the snake, the murderer, the liar, the father of lies, the thief. And then I told you his three objectives when he comes into our lives. Jesus said he only comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. You need to bear that in mind. The devil never comes to do you good. He may represent that he's come that way for that purpose. He may seem to offer you a lot that's good. But behind all that, 
He only has one ultimate purpose, to steal, to kill, to destroy. And then I spoke about some of the main ways that Satan works. He deceives, he tempts, he hinders, he accuses. Today I'm going to share with you one basic scriptural fact which alone makes it possible for us to overcome evil. The fact is this, that Jesus has already defeated Satan on our behalf. The victory over Satan is not going to be won It has been won. It was won when Jesus died, shed his blood on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That was Satan's total, permanent, irreversible defeat. And he does everything now that he can to keep us from understanding this fact. He cannot change the fact, but he does everything he can to keep us from knowing it, understanding it, and applying it. For a statement of this victory of Jesus over Satan, I'm going to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now notice the next verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's Satan's whole kingdom, all his evil powers, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So actually this is something that God the Father did through Jesus Christ the Son at the cross, He disarmed all Satan's forces that he uses against us. He stripped them of their weapons. He defeated them. And he not merely defeated them, but he triumphed over them. He made a public spectacle of them. You see, a triumph is not just the winning of a victory. It's the public demonstration and celebration of a victory that has already been won. It's the demonstration of defeated enemies led in chains as captives behind the triumphal conqueror's chariot. And at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and all his evil forces, stripped them of their weapons against us, and put them to a public shame. He triumphed over them. He made a public spectacle of them. Now, we cannot understand how Jesus did this unless we see what took place at the cross. At the cross, Jesus deprived Satan of his basic weapon against us. You remember I said that was guilt. That's why he accuses. He wants to prove us guilty. Well, at the cross, Jesus dealt with the basis of our guilt in two ways. First of all, through the cross, all our sins can be forgiven. So Jesus dealt with the past. He provided forgiveness of past sins. Secondly, at the cross, God cancelled the written code, that's the law, with its regulations, for it was against us. It stood opposed to us. We could never get to God because of the law and its requirements, because we could never meet those requirements. But at the cross, God took that out of the way. The law was nailed to the cross. 
When Jesus died on our behalf as our representative, he paid the final penalty for all who had broken the law, death. And once we've paid the final penalty, then we are no longer subject to the requirements of the law. So Jesus made it possible for us to be set free totally from guilt. First of all, our past sins can be completely forgiven. Secondly, we are no longer required to observe the law as a means to achieving righteousness with God. Instead, we come to God on the basis of our faith in the death of Jesus, and our faith is credited to us as righteousness. Now let's look at the result of what Jesus did. We go back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, where Paul says this, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice it all centers around our redemption through the cross. Through that redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. We are no longer required to observe the law in order to achieve righteousness. And so, by that, God has done two things. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of light. Notice that darkness has dominion. It's a real kingdom. Never pretend that Satan doesn't have power. He does have power. His power initially came from God, the only source of power. But in his wickedness and in his rebellion, he has turned it and used it against God and against God's people. But through the death of Jesus on the cross, we've been delivered from that whole evil dominion of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And we have been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. There's been a total transition. We have to see that. Effected through the cross, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and we've been carried over into the kingdom of light. We are no longer under Satan's dominion. Rather, we're in a kingdom which has dominion over Satan. For the scripture says that God's kingdom rules over all. Once we have been delivered from this dominion of darkness, and once we become citizens of the kingdom of God, then God sends us forth as his representatives, as his army, to administer the victory of Jesus over Satan. Jesus won the victory, but God leaves it to us through faith to understand the victory that Jesus has won and then to administer it, to exercise authority over Satan. We have been translated, delivered from the dominion of darkness. We're in the kingdom of God. We have the authority of God's kingdom vested in us. Listen to something that happened while Jesus was still on earth in his earthly ministry, and then we'll see the application. In Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, we read this. The seventy returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Notice the demons are part of the representatives of the unseen kingdom of darkness. They are some of the persons without bodies. The disciples discovered to their intense joy that when they went as the representatives of Jesus, sent by him with his authority, then those unseen persons, those evil spirits without bodies, had to obey them when they commanded them in the name of Jesus. So they said, Lord, 
even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I understand that was perhaps the first time that on a major scale the victory of Jesus was administered by his followers and it was like Satan falling from heaven like lightning. But then Jesus goes on to say this, and this is of vital importance. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Grasp those words. When we become the representatives of God's kingdom, then God, through Jesus, gives us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, the representatives of Satan's evil kingdom, and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Notice, we have total authority. The total victory of Jesus and the total authority of Jesus is now vested in us as his followers, his disciples, the representatives of his kingdom. And then, lest we should be afraid, and I'm sure fear could often enter our hearts as we view this conflict, Jesus closes with those words, Nothing will harm you. Let me give that statement again. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now that was not just said for the benefit of those disciples. It's a pattern for each subsequent generation of believers. We go forth in the name of Jesus to administer Jesus' victory and Jesus' authority over all the representatives of Satan's kingdom. Yesterday I shared the one basic scriptural fact which alone makes it possible for us to overcome evil. The fact is this, that on the cross Jesus has already defeated Satan on our behalf. You must lay hold of that fact and retain it. It's essential to overcoming evil. On the cross Jesus has already totally defeated Satan on our behalf. How did he do it? Well, he deprived Satan of his basic weapon against us, which is guilt, by doing two things. First, he provided forgiveness of past sins, so we're no longer under the guilt of the sins we've committed in the past. Second, he cancelled the written code of the law as the requirement for achieving righteousness, so we no longer have to keep every detail of the law in order to be received as righteous before God. On the other hand, now through the new covenant, our faith is reckoned to us as righteousness without the observing of the law. So in this way, Jesus achieved two things. First, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Second, he brought us into the kingdom of light. These are the, like the two opposite sides of one coin. We're delivered from the dominion of darkness, from Satan's kingdom. We are carried over into the kingdom of light. We pass from one kingdom to another kingdom. And in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, we are in a kingdom which rules over all in the universe. Now, as a result of this, Jesus sends us out to administer his victory over the kingdom of Satan. Let's look at one specific promise that he gave to his disciples while he was still on earth, a promise that's still valid for us as his disciples today. 
It's found in Luke 10, 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. That's as true for us today as it was for those early disciples. On the basis of the cross, Jesus has given us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. That's all the representatives of Satan's kingdom and to overcome all the power of the enemy. See, it is possible for us totally to overcome the power of evil. And then that last beautiful little promise that's added on, nothing will harm you. In other words, you don't need to be afraid. Just believe in me and do what I tell you, and you'll see my victory worked out in your lives. Today I'm going to explain the spiritual weapons God has provided for our spiritual warfare. Since our warfare is spiritual, our weapons have to correspond. Material, physical weapons, armaments, guns, tanks, all these things are of no avail in this spiritual warfare. I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not carnal, they're not physical. By implication, they are spiritual. But, Paul goes on, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Our weapons are divinely powerful. They have the power of God himself in them. And they enable us to destroy Satan's fortresses. Please note that the Bible does not picture us as on the defensive, but as on the attack. We are not cowering behind our fortresses, wondering what Satan can do against us. We're out on the attack, attacking and destroying Satan's fortresses. And then Paul continues, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Wherever Satan raises a fortress, something lofty, something proud and arrogant and self-assertive, asserting his kingdom and his claims, there we move against it with the weapons that God has given us and we destroy these fortresses. Now God has provided many marvelous weapons. But today I want to focus on what I believe to be the most powerful of all. And I say this not only on the basis of Scripture, but of my own personal experience. I'm sharing with you now lessons out of Scripture that I have proved again and again in my own experience. I'm not offering you just theology or theory. I'm speaking on the basis of experience and of facts that I have proved. I'm going to turn to Revelation chapter 12 once more, verses 10 and 11. That's the verses that follow immediately after the revelation of Satan as the dragon and the serpent. This is what we read. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses him before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now that's a picture of total final victory by believers over Satan and his kingdom. Notice it's the believers who won the victory. I personally believe that that final total victory has not yet been achieved. I believe it's ahead in the future. I believe it will be totally achieved. But in the meanwhile, we are advancing fortress by fortress against Satan and his kingdom. And there, in that description of the victory, we see 
this marvellous array of weapons that brought the victory. I want to read that section again. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let me point out certain things. First of all, it's they overcame him. They is the believers, him is Satan. In other words, there's a direct conflict with believers on one hand, Satan on the other. Believers confront Satan directly, personally. Secondly, it speaks of total commitment. It says, they, the overcoming believers, did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's essential. It's only the totally committed who have the authority to wield these weapons. It's like a soldier when he serves in an army. He does not serve with the reservation that he must stay alive. He's prepared, if need be, to lay down his life. And that's the same kind of commitment that we have to make in this war against Satan. And then notice the weapons. The blood of the Lamb, the Word of God, and the testimony of believers. Let me just say those three weapons that go together once more. They're so important. Lay hold of them. The blood of the Lamb, the Word of God, and the testimony of believers. In the latter part of my talk today, I want to speak about that phrase, the blood of the Lamb. It's so important that we understand exactly what that denotes. It has an Old Testament background. For any Jewish reader, when they heard about the blood of the Lamb, their first thought would be the Passover ceremony, which was how they were delivered out of their bondage in Egypt and that which they celebrated every year as a continual reminder of that deliverance and that victory. So I'm going to read a brief passage in Exodus chapter 12 which describes this Passover ceremony and it will show you the place of the blood of the Lamb. Exodus 12 verses 21 through 23. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. See, the entire protection of Israel centered in the lamb that was to be slaughtered and its blood. The only way of protection was through the blood of the Passover lamb. What happened was that each Israelite father took the lamb for his house and slaughtered it. And he caught every drop of that precious blood in some kind of basin or receptacle. Now, at that point, the lamb was slain, the blood was in the basin, but the blood in the basin did not protect a single person. God is very specific. The blood has to be transferred from the basin to the place where protection is needed, the home of that father. And it has to be applied over the entrance to the home the lintel and the two side posts, but not, of course, on the threshold. We must never walk over the blood. It's too sacred. And only when the blood had been applied thus visibly on the external of the home was protection ensured for those in the home, provided that they remained in the home, that is, behind the blood. Now, to get the blood from the basin to the doorpost, 
there was only one means provided. That was hyssop, a little plant that grows very commonly throughout the Middle East, can be found anywhere. After the lamb had been slaughtered, its blood had been caught in the basin, that Israelite father had to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and then sprinkle the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts with the hyssop. So you see, hyssop was a very humble thing, very common, very easy to obtain, and yet it was crucial, because without the hyssop, the lamb would have been slain in vain, and no protection would have been provided for that Israelite family. Now, in the New Testament, God has given us something that corresponds to the hyssop with which we apply the blood of Jesus and thus avail ourselves of the total protection and provision which is ours through the blood. Now, in tomorrow's talk, I'm going to focus on this vital issue. I want you to be sure to tune in again tomorrow because I'm going to explain to you in the New Covenant what it is that corresponds to the hyssop in the Old Covenant how we can actually avail ourselves of the blood of Jesus in such a way that we are totally protected from the destroyer, from the enemy. In my talk yesterday, I focused on the picture of our warfare against Satan, which is found in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. I'll read those verses once more. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I pointed out certain important features of that description of the victory of believers over Satan. First of all, it's a direct person-to-person -person encounter between the believers on the one hand and Satan on the other. It says, they, the believers, overcame him. Direct person-to-person -person conflict. We must not shrink from it. It's a fact of Scripture. We've got to encounter Satan directly and we've got to overcome him. Second, I pointed out that it required total commitment to win that victory. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I gave you the example of a soldier in an army. When he's called up or enlists or volunteers, he does not serve in the army on the condition that he will not have to lay down his life. Every soldier in an army knows it may cost him his life. And that's how it must be with us as Christians. We have no point to draw back from our commitment, no matter what it costs, even if it's life itself. That's the commitment that's required to win the victory. And then I pointed out the weapons that are there described. And I said there are three. The blood of the Lamb, the Word of God, and the testimony of believers. Let me say those again. The blood of the Lamb, the Word of God, and the testimony of believers. And I explained that this picture is taken from the Old Testament ordinance of the Passover. The phrase, the blood of the Lamb, immediately turns our minds back to the ordinance of the Passover Lamb. I explained how, in order to protect his home, every Israelite father had to take a lamb, slaughter it, catch the blood in a basin, and then transfer the blood from the basin to his home to the place where the protection was needed. 
The blood in the basin made protection available. It did not ensure it. In order to have protection, that father had to transfer the blood of the lamb from the basin to the place where he lived. And he had to take the blood and apply it on the lintel and the two doorposts of the door of his home. And in order to get the blood from the basin to the home, he was to use just one particular thing, a little bunch of hyssop, a plant that grows very commonly throughout the Middle East that's available anywhere. And yet, though it was such a humble and common item, it was absolutely essential because it was the only authorized way to transfer the blood of the lamb from the basin to the place where the protection was needed. Now, in my talk today, I'm going to show you how this applies to our spiritual warfare against Satan. In particular, I'm going to show you what it means for us to exercise the authority given us to avail ourselves of the blood. In the New Testament, there is something that corresponds to the hyssop that transferred the blood of the Passover lamb from the place in the basin to the place where it was needed on the lintel on the doorpost of the home. First of all, let me make this clear. The New Testament shows us clearly that the Passover lamb was a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that all that was typically revealed about the Passover lamb was fulfilled actually in Jesus, the Lamb of God, and through his death on the cross. Let me give you just two scriptures. First of all, John chapter 1 verse 29, speaking about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So, John, by revelation, pointed out to the people of his time, Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Every Israelite who heard that phrase, the Lamb of God, was immediately reminded, because of his background and his tradition, of that unique, sacred ceremony of the Passover Lamb. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul says this, and here the application is even more precise. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's a fact of history. When Jesus died on the cross, he was the lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. He was the Passover lamb, who was slain, that by his blood, protection and total victory might be made available to all the people of God. Now, I want to go back to the Old Testament pattern of the Passover and show you how exactly it applies. I said that in the Passover ceremony, the blood of the Lamb had to be shed and it had to be caught in the basin. There it was in the basin, available, but the blood in the basin actually protected no Israelite home or family. For protection, the blood had to be transferred from the basin to the home, to the place where the person lived, to the place where the protection was needed. And there was only one way to do that, to transfer the blood from the basin to the home with a little bunch of hyssop. 
the father dipped the hyssop in the blood in the basin and then sprinkled it on the lintel and the two doorposts. Now, the same principle applies in availing ourselves of the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb who's been slain on our behalf. His blood has been shed. Through it, protection and total victory are made available to all of God's people. But in terms of the pattern of the Passover, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is, as it were, in the basin. It's there. It's available. It will do everything we need. But in order to enjoy the protection and the victory made available to us through the blood, we have to transfer the blood to our own lives, to the place where we live. We've got to apply it personally. Now, in the Passover lamb ceremony, they used a bunch of hyssop. Obviously, we don't do that. But God has provided something for us that's just as real and just as effective as the hyssop. Let me go back to the statement, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The other two key phrases are the word and their testimony. Let me share with you now one of the most precious truths that God has ever revealed to me, one of the most effective in my own life. It's this. In order to transfer the blood of Jesus to the place where we need protection and victory, we do not use hyssop, but we use our personal testimony. Our testimony in the New Testament takes the place of the hyssop in the old. And so we transfer the blood of Jesus to our lives when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us. Let me repeat now that one crucial decisive statement that I made. We overcome Satan when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us. It's our testimony that's the hyssop that takes the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, made available, and applies it to our own lives. You see, there are three elements, three different weapons that put together bring total victory. The first, the blood of the Lamb. The second, the Word of God. And the third, our personal testimony, what we ourselves say with our own mouths. Now, the blood of the Lamb since Jesus was slain, it's always there in the basin. It's always available. The Word of God never changes. It's unvarying. The variable factor in that operation is our testimony. Our testimony corresponds to the hyssop. It's something simple. It's something available to everybody. And yet it's crucial. Without the hyssop, under the Old Covenant... The blood of the Passover lamb did nothing for anybody. It was available, but it was ineffective. Likewise, in the New Covenant, without our testimony, the blood of Christ is available. Everything we ever need is contained in the blood. All its provisions are revealed through the Word, but it's our testimony and our testimony alone that makes all that effective. So, listen carefully again. To overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony means that we use our personal testimony. And with our personal testimony, we say about the blood of Jesus what the word of God says. Everything 
that the Word of God says the blood of Jesus will do, we say it is doing for us. And when we make it personal, when we state it boldly with our lips, when we affirm it before all the unseen world, when we say this is what the Word of God says, the blood of Jesus does for me and it's doing it right now, then that's the hyssop which takes the blood and makes it available to us and gives us total protection and victory through it. If you would like information about further teaching resources available from Derek Prince Ministries UK, please call us and request a copy of our latest resource guide on 01462 492 100. You may also visit our website at www.dpmuk.org or write to us at DPMUK Kingsfield, Hadrian Way, Baldock, SG7 6AN. Okay, praise God. All right, Chaplain John Durden, you have the mic. Yes, I'm right here, brother. It was good to hear my brother again, man, with all that traveling and doing and handling uh, internal uh, situation with the house and everything. Yes, it's good to be back to hear the word of God from the man of God. I really enjoyed it. God bless you. God bless you. Okay. We will see everybody tomorrow with Evangelist Janice Taylor. God bless and have a wonderful, 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 wonderful night. And if I can find my <laughs> new my new song, got a lot going on. Putting to get ready to teach out of Holland. Okay. Then you can also check us out at Live Livers Plug-In. We are now also with Holland, France, Germany, Portuguese, Mongolia, South Africa, West Africa, Mozambique, and Cairo, Egypt. We have interpreters in 14 countries now, plus five more in Western Europe. Shalom, and have a nice evening. Don't forget to sow a seed here at Live Deliverance Internet Radio. Go to www.livedeliverance.com. Go to the PayPal site, and God put something in your heart to sow. So, amen. All right, here we go. Jamaica, July, June, and January 15th. I'll be back in Jamaica permanently. Shalom. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds when I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. For by one offering, oh yes, just one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified.